Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Start of another and, show. And you know what's always nice is to have authors come back again. Repeat authors. Repeat authors. And, well, I'm welcoming back Megan Wilson Anastasius. Welcome back, Megan. It's an absolute delight to oh, be here, Jan. <laughs> now, in your last book, you built the character Benedict Hitchens as an honourable thief. Well, what is his profession and what, what has he possibly been stealing? Well, he's an archaeologist, and archaeologists uh, should really probably stay away from thievery. It's not really an advisable career advancement move. Uh, so he uh, got himself caught up in, a, in an antiquities smuggling ring, basically. He, di- he was duped, but before that he had also been... Uh, taking the odd thing from his own excavations to fund to some fund. more. It was, all for, it was all for the best noble of possible. Reasons. Noble reasons, absolutely. Well, as you say, he mixes on the edge. And we have Ilan Aslan, urban, dignified and charming. What's he, what does he do? Well, he is uh, also rather questionable in his ethics and approach to antiquities. And as a former archaeologist myself, of course, I frown on these <laughs> appalling activities. Uh, he he also buys and sells stolen antiquities and also gets into a bit of uh, selling fraud, fakes and forgeries as well. And he associates with the worst type of cop. Well, he doesn't associate. He'd like to associate because... Superintendent Hassan Demur, why is he the worst kind of cop? He can't be bought. Can't be bought. Yeah, terrible, very uncooperative. Yeah, and his job is to protect the antiquities. Yes, and he, he takes, it very, takes his job very seriously. Then there are the super baddies, the Frenchman and Nazi collaborator Monsieur Joseph Gavet. Malignant bastard is what <laughs> Ben actually calls him. Very wealthy, employs others to do his dirty work. And what does he want most in life? Uh, that remains fairly obscure. I mean, basically he wants power and money. Yeah. He, he cares for little other than accumulating power. And sacred relics. Yes. Yeah, well, sacred relics so that he can flog them to someone for a lot of money and yeah. get power. And there's a woman. And her particular talent is finding sacred relics. And she's associated with Garvey. Is she English? Estelle Peters. Well, perhaps Ben knows her as Eris Patras. Yeah, she's a in the in the first book in the Honourable Thief. She was a a very enigmatic character, uh, but in the Emerald Tablet, she really rises to to the occasion. We get her backstory, and she's a very complex and ambitious woman, mm. uh, trying to make it at a time where it wasn't easy to be a woman, and it certainly wasn't easy to be doing what she does, which is to uh, run around trying to find and sell antiquities. Mm. Well, all of these characters have history which connects them from a previous book, An Honourable Thief. But this is explained through the storytelling of this book. This story is greater than the characters. It goes from personal to political. So 
Where is it taking place? Well, it's set against the backdrop of the Suez Crisis, which, uh, to my mind, is a is a very key moment in. Uh, 20th century and, and world history because it's sort of the turning point where we see uh, the fall of the colonial powers of France and Britain and the rise of Russia and America as superpowers. And within that, there's a very curious uh, fact that uh, America at the time hated, more than anything, hated uh, the communism and was doing everything it could to stop it and so was siding with Egypt whereas uh, and actually uh, standing against Israel which was a very curious historical phenomenon when you look at the way things are today. Mm. So this is this was the crucible into which I threw my my hero and and uh, other associated <laughs> characters yeah. And of course the Suez Canal it's all about shipping channels and what the main um, thing was that it was shipped was oil. Yeah. And now imagine, imagine if there was another transformative energy process. What if the process to achieve this was known long ago and the secret, secret was written on an emerald tablet? <laughs> and this is the title of Megan Wilson and Anastasius' new book, The Emerald Tablet. How does your story start? Well, it starts with uh, with a negotiate. Well, if you think are we talking the prologue. prologue, the prologue we we have a, a unnamed character uh, basically sl- uh, slogging their way into a to a hiding place to hide this tablet uh, because it, uh, this person is aware of the power it is. And also the power that this tablet is killing him with radiation. And the potential that it has, and it has a huge potential, but that the world isn't quite ready for it. Yeah. And, uh, well, there's always been thought that there's a philosopher's stone out there. The, The alchemists think that they can turn anything into gold. And there was a man, Falconelli, who came so close to finding this alchemy, but they need to know the clues. And one of the clues is written in this really old book that's found in this old, old library. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, I mean, it's important that, I mean, the, his, a lot of the historical and contextual detail in the book is actually based on fact and, and history. Yeah. It's his, the historical accuracy is ac- actually... You know, pretty spot on. It's I've I've obviously extrapolated enormously uh, to develop the story, but details of the of alchemy and uh, you know the the association of it with some pretty remarkable people, and thinking of alchemy as science rather than mumbo jumbo mm. jo, jumbo is very is very real. So yes. So would you actually yes, read please, the okay page thirty eight. It's quite remarkable, you know, the librarian said, clutching the ancient tome in breadstick brittle arms. I may as well put this out on permanent display with the interest it's been getting. This book has been here for hundreds of years. I can't think of a single time I've had to bring it out of storage until recently. But now, a constant stream of visitors. The Englishwoman, an American diplomat, two visiting Soviet scholars, they were here just yesterday. And now you... It would have been comforting to dismiss it as coincidence, but that was something in which Benedict Hitchens put little stock. Yeah. So all of these different nationalities, all after this, and the race is on for this ancient treasure hidden deep in the Sinai Desert. But when Ben wants to um, wants to sabotage their scheme and gets some leads from whomever helps him, well, 
you know, there, there's a librarian that helps him, there's other people, and they all end up dead. <laughs> there's this other character, Ricard Schubert, who likes the idea of death by a thousand cuts. And he does so with muscle shells. Oh, he's just horrible. <laughs> Let's hear a little bit about him from page 179. As he watched the first man's head disintegrate, Ricard Schubert thought it was probably the first time he'd killed someone with the intention of saving another. Killing was what he did, but it was usually a means to an end. It rarely came with any collateral benefits to any of the people involved. He killed to get information, as he had in Cappadocia and at, and at Top Carpi. He killed to get rid of people who got in the way, and he killed just for the hell of it. But he couldn't remember a time he'd done it to help someone else. So who had he saved? He'd saved Benedict. I know. <laughs> and I can't tell you why. We're it... <laughs> not. So the Americans, the CIA, were about to arrest Ben. Well, they're out of the picture now. But there were the Russians, whom seemed to know where he was all the time, and the English. Now, there's Bill, who um, he's got a big job. He, Uncle Bill, who heads up the Atomic Energy Authority in, in, in um, English Parliament who may be upscaling hostilities for a reason, but it's his nephew, Adam Penny, who along with these, with Essie and Gave, are really onto this tablet. Adam Penny is not nice. <laughs> you know, it's sort of authors can sort of say, well, he's not nice. But what um, Megan's done is sort of put him into so many uh, actions and just made him despicable. <laughs> He, yeah, he is a fairly repellent human being, uh, and uh, it is—it's always fun letting letting yourself loose on on revolting characters. It's you almost kind of get more into the revolting characters than you do the pleasant ones sometimes. And then there's the, the Israelis, Ethan Cohen. He's the mentor and teacher of uh, Ben, but they've had a falling out. Yes, no, they have, and uh, and this in, in in part touches on uh, what went on in the first book. Uh, and although you can read this book without having read the first book, it's a oh, standalone yeah. standalone book. Uh, and so, yes, the that part of Ben's resolving that uh, conflict with his former mentor is is an important part of his own personal redemption. His. But of course, we know that as soon as Ben uh, visits somebody, they're dead. <laughs> And this is what happens. Well, no, it, it nearly <laughs> happens. And this is why there's so much action in your books. I really wonder, do you enact a fight so that you can actually describe it, describe it so graphically? I do. I do have pieces of paper with things scribbled down and little little diagrams to see whether things are going to work. And then I do actually think, well, if he's hiding down, how high does the thing have to be to see over it? So, no, I do get quite technical. I get use the children as props sometimes, I, I, move them around the room because you stand there. You, can you see? Yeah. So I do do a bit of play acting with that. And sort of how much elbow room you need for a spear? <laughs> And, yeah, oh. I generally don't involve weapons in the reenactments. It could be dangerous, particularly with children involved. Well, the action descriptions are detailed, and thankfully the sex is a little <laughs> bit more understated. <laughs> but it's always the heat of proximity between Ben and Essie, and there's always a reason why they don't get it together. But we do learn in this book a little bit more about their backstories. Yes, look, I think uh, it was when I wrote The Honourable Thief – 
in, foremost in my mind was actually the opportunity to uh, tell Essie's story in the second book uh, because I, I feel very deeply for her character. I'm, I'm very she's actually probably my favourite character in the book and so the opportunity to actually flesh her out and, and I've known her backstory since oh. I first started conceiving it the, their, their lives are in my head and so I was just waiting for the moment to tell her story or part of her story which is and so it was very um, it was a real thrill to, to have the opportunity to do that Look it's so maybe Ben might find out her backstory next book <laughs> Quite possibly. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many surprises. We have Sibyl, the old woman, taunted by the local children. Um, Essie's return to her house in London. And so this race, it's it's just got so much happening in it. And, of course, in war, all the borders are closed. Mm. So sort of getting people through borders is quite an act in itself. And how to blow up jeeps. Connie, you've really gone to... <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't actually reenact any jeep blowing up. But yeah, it was fun to think about it. So if anyone's visited any of these areas, like the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul or the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, they'll really love the detail you've put in. Well, thank you. It's, it's, I, I mean, they're all places that uh, I have been, uh, you know, deeply engraved in my subconscious. I've just, I've had such wonderful experiences in all these places for many years. And so the opportunity to actually share that on the page is, is deeply rewarding. And yes, I think anyone who either has been there or aspires to go there one day will hopefully uh, get a sense of what the places are like. What about the monastery at Mount Catherine at the foot of oh, Mount Sinai? So you have been oh, there. It is un- the Sinai is. I'm not a religious person, but really, and I think actually Essie says in in the book, if she was going to find God, that's where she'd do it, because it is a truly extraordinary place. You feel about the size of a gnat, and the the mountains and the the monastery itself. I'm getting, actually getting goosebumps talking about it. It's it is the most extraordinary place. Wow. Well, we do get a sense of that, um, even though we don't have to take out a theolo- theodite. <laughs> theolo- theodolite. Theodolite. <laughs> we don't theodolite. have to take one of those out. <laughs> so we have Megan Wilson Anastasio's book, The Emerald Tablet. It, look, it's a, it's, it's a world on the brink of war, a sinister conspiracy, an ancient treasure, an archaeologist, archaeologist's race <laughs> And it's got action aplenty. Oh, look, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it's a big book. It's a, yeah, it's yeah, a decent it's, it's size. It's a weighty tome. It's a weighty tome. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Megan, once again. And I'm looking forward to reading the next, next part of Ben and Essie or whoever she'll be this time. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so, so much, Jan. The Emerald Tablet, uh, published by Pan Macmillan. Thank you, Jan. Well, mine, uh, my guest has also got a sequel. Now, Jay Kristoff created a dystopian future in his novel Lifelike. Now, in the sequel, Deviant, he explores the unfolding chaos that follows. So, Jay, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks for having me back. It's always now, nice. <laughs> well, it's good to know. Now, before getting into the story proper... I want to explore your sense of imagination. As the uh, line on the cover says, this story is a crazed mashup of Blade Runner, Paradise Lost, X-Men, Mad Max, and everything in between. It seems there's quite a lot going on in your head. <laughs> Some would say. Some would say. Some would say. Well, I mean, for example, the language flings in one character from uh, adolescent slang, like murderising and brain meets, 
And then in another character, we have Shakespearean lines like a very palpable hit. How do you swing so effortlessly between the two? I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's effortless. I'm glad I make it look that way. Um, I mean, the the protagonists in this book are teenagers, so they're going to use teenage vernacular, uh, and that vernacular is is a shorthand to evoking a sense of place that you're that you're not in the world that you once knew, but at the same time, it's a world built on the ruins of the one that we have. So. But at the artifacts same, like Shakespeare would probably remain. The artifacts would remain. But is this deliberate or is it just sort of what comes to mind as you write? Uh, it's a little bit of both. I mean, some, sometimes there's a, there's a point to it in terms of establishing plot or metaplot or mood. Uh, sometimes it's, it's just an exercise in freewheeling imagination. I mean, you're talking about a post-collapse world. So I'm really spitballing about the artifacts and thoughts and processes that are going to live through a total collapse of the society in which we live. Well, you've got things that survive, like Robot Wars, which, yeah. <laughs> which is a sort of chaotic program on television at the moment where people have created their robots, but you've sort of extrapolated on this to an extreme. Yeah, I mean, gladiatorial combat is a, is a pretty old concept that's been around for a few thousand years. Uh, it kind of makes sense to me in the future that if you have creatures that don't actually die when you fight them you'd probably use them as some form of entertainment but uh, robots in this world are also a labor force uh, and they're built under the three laws that Isaac Asimov's established back in the middle of the 20th century. But here again you play with this concept so the sort of three laws that Isaac Asimov put in about how robots should behave you actually challenge it with logic so in this book for adolescence, so to speak, you're actually taking on quite a profound theme in many ways, because as the uh, robot Cricket finds out, Cricket tilted his head up. I never thought about it like that. Colour me distinctly unsurprised, friend Paladin. You don't seem a very creative sort. So if a human commanded me to leave a room, you could leave the room, then walk right back in again, unless they specifically ordered you to stay out for a certain duration. And if someone told me not to move, you could stay still for all of a second and then move again, unless specifically told otherwise. The big print giveth and the fine print taketh away. You're actually challenging the laws of robotics with logic. Right. I mean, they're they're fundamentally quite simplistic concepts. So if you were a lawyer or, or or a rules gamer, then you can game them pretty easily. So yeah, I was examining those those concepts and precepts and the fun that you could have in the grey area thereof. But the robot that gives him this advice is one called Solomon. Right. <laughs> now, come on. Well Solomon? Well spotted. Well spotted. But there's a biblical reference. Sure. Are you expecting your reader to be aware of these? Uh, it's not an expectation, but I, I put these Easter eggs in the book um, in the hopes <laughs> that people who have read the same books as me or been influenced by the same artists as me will spot them. And that's... That's something I do in all my books, and it's not just biblical or literal references. I put song lyrics in there from bands that I like. Um, that it's really, it's it's an extra surprise for somebody who's into the same books or music or film. As, but at the as same time, you, you say band references. I probably didn't get those, but you've also got maybe things, not. Maybe not. <laughs> I don't listen to the same bands. Is, is Bark a band? Yeah. But anyway, you've, you've also then got the Daedalus Corporation, which was into solar power. Sure. There's a mythological. Reference, yeah, uh, because Daedalus was the father, father of, of Icarus, Icarus, right, and such like. So again, what on earth is going on in this head of yours? I mean, I, I honestly don't know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, the, the, this future is a pastiche. Um, it's 
it's a thought exercise in terms of what will survive the collapse of the society that we live in. Um, and it's being shaped by me and my imagination. So obviously the things that I like and I'm influenced by are the things that survive. Uh, so yeah. It's- but again, I mean, the, uh, the main heroine, if I can put it that way, is a character called Lemon Fresh. Right. Now, <laughs> she was named after a, a box of laundry detergent. She was found in as a baby in a box of laundry detergent, and the people who found her didn't particularly care much for babies, and they gave her that name. But this reminds me of Oscar Wilde. Right. Um, Ernest Worthing. He was found on the Worthing line. The line is immaterial. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's that sort of same farcical fun. I mean, were you uh, aware of, of the Oscar Wilde uh, sort of analogy? Or? No, 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 I wasn't. Because he, I feel I've been educated. <laughs> but but it's, it's why it's I like the, coming back here. <laughs> it's the same sort of chaos, but at the same time, Lemon Fresh, uh, in this instance, uh, is responsible for the fate of the Saving world. The world. <laughs> yeah, the it's world. a very very heavy weight to put on the shoulders of a girl with that kind of name. So you know, there's this extraordinary juxtaposition. Right. I mean, take- the, the book is really about. Lemon was the sidekick in the first book, uh, and I can't go too much into spoilers for people who haven't read the first book, but at the end of the first book, the the person you thought who's the protagonist is removed from the action, uh, and this unit, this familial unit almost, has built up around her, and when she's removed, all of those characters need to discover who they are in context of her absence. And so Lemon, who was the sidekick and the wisecracking best friend, suddenly realised that, oh... I'm the hero of this story now and I need to step up and, and learn to be that new person. But here's another question then in terms of what's going on in your mind. How did you conceptualise all of this in terms of were you aware when you wrote Lifelike that Deviant was going to logically follow? Yeah, I, I, knew, I knew how Lifelike was going to end when I started writing. Usually I start with the end point in mind. I find that works best for my processes if i'm if i'm just driving blindly down the street with no idea of where i'm going i tend to get lost whereas if i have a a point on the horizon that i'm driving towards i find it easier to write books that way so i knew how life late was going to finish and i knew that the resulting chaos uh that would arise at the end of life like would force all of the characters in book two to rediscover who they are at the same time the the story lines in this it is very um, easy to identify. So basically, we've got three characters, Lemon Fresh, Ezekiel and Cricket, who are separated. They've got to find their way back together again. Yeah, it's the, it's the two towers. It's the sundering of the fellowship. Yes, yeah. but that then allows you three storylines. Yeah, and exploring three different aspects of the world. Yeah. Yeah, so we can then follow those threads through interestingly there's another biblical name ezekiel and, and yeah, all of those. that's pointed out in text as well name <laughs> of a good prophet there i mean there is a religious character in the text a character named preacher who starts out as a villain and becomes a semi-trustworthy ally but you also then go into this religious sort of uh, realm because you have Sister D in New Bethlehem. Yeah, and the Brotherhood, who and are the brotherhood. religious fundamentalists. So you're yeah. taking on this whole question of fundamentalism. In yeah, yeah, and, and it being used as an excuse to establish power. Well, and, but again, this is a very ad, well advanced concept, a complex concept um, in an adolescent novel. I mean, adults would enjoy this just as much 
as the adolescent 15-year-old. Yeah, I would hope so. But, I mean, I, I don't think there's any issue in establishing complex concepts for teenage readers. I think, you know, teenagers are living in the world that we are building and I'm trying to pass some kind of comment on the world in which we're building and they're going to have to shape it when they become adults themselves. So. Yes, I mean, and these issues emerge. I mean, the environment, uh, because you've got a, a company here called Biomass, yep. which are responsible for... Genetic so, modification. Genetic modification. Yeah. Seems to ring a bell about another company that's doing sure. something similar. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> as I said, Daedalus with, with solar power, which has gone into robotics as well. Yep. I mean, these are actual questions that we're facing today. Sure. I mean, I think the best science fiction is is science fiction that explores the problem of the present through the lens of futurism. So these issues that I'm examining in the book are issues that we're facing today. Environmental depletion, resource destruction, the rise of robotic technology and machine learning, and how that's going to influence, or how it does influence almost every aspect of our daily lives today, let alone what it's going to look like in 30 or 40 years' time. So, yeah, these are the issues of the now explored through a lens of fighting robots and post-collapse United <laughs> States and characters called Lemon Fresh. I mean, I'm, I'm, trying to, uh, I'm trying to paint a larger picture with a smaller brush, if that makes sense. It's, it's easier for people to understand these large concepts when looking at them in micro or the macro. Well, you, you've, you've got to find a means of access. And sure. so if you've got a character with whom you can identify... It makes it easier to look at these concerns and concepts. Yeah, hopefully. That's, that's the intent anyway. And also then with all of these references that you've got going through, people can relate to it at different levels. So here am I thinking, oh, this is mythology, this is Shakespeare. But at the same time, band references and such like. So sure. And pe- hopefully you get exposed to new ideas and new turns of phrase and new ways of thinking and investigating them for yourself. And become familiar. Sure. Now, I just want to pick up on a point that, that Megan made about identifying with a character. You've got Lemon Fresh, all of about 15, who has difficulty reaching the door of the vehicle she's trying she's to... She's very short. She's very short. Vertically challenged. Now, um, you, on the other hand, are six foot seven. <laughs> yeah. How did you place Put yourself... Put myself in the, in the body of a tiny 15-year-old girl? Sure. <laughs> uh, I mean, every, every character that I build has an aspect of me in them. Uh, Lemon's physicality is certainly not anything close to mine, but... Uh, the way I think the way she examines the world uh, is is a little closer to my own point of view. She's inquisitive. She's naturally optimistic. I, I don't I don't look naturally optimistic, but I, I she tends to bring a levity and a brightness to a room that I hope I do in turn. I'm not sure if I succeed, but maybe she's an idealized version of me. A lemon fresh version. Yeah, <laughs> so, a six foot it, seven black wearing lemon version. He's wearing. Black. Yeah, all black. So we're very Fitzroy today. We're looking. We're all in black in here. So yeah, it, but it's it's this madcap sense that uh, is there because as the, again coming back to that opening line, Paradise Lost, which is a classical reference, Milton, yeah, and, and such like. But then Mad Max and X Men because you've taken elements of those as well, and it's not derivative. It's a new rethinking in many ways. You've got characters that have uh, extraordinary powers Mm. in this as well. So, I mean, that bridge between when it becomes derivative, when it becomes original, uh, because just like the references you've used, it 
is a, a touchstone in some ways, more than anything else. Yeah, sure. I mean, Paradise Lost is was a big influence on the first book uh, and the origins of this entire story, which was the fall of a company called Gnosis, who had inig- initially built these creatures called lifelikes that are essentially androids. They're human-looking robots. Uh, and the fall that resulted as a result of of the hubris of their creators uh, was... Yeah, it was drawn... Paradise Lost was one of the primary resources upon which I drew to build that mythology. And the word Gnosis is where we get Gnostics or sure. Agnostics yeah. from. So you, you're, you're looking at that whole question of creation in lifelike. Yeah, and, and then, the morality thereof, yeah. And it simply echoes then through this as well. Yeah. Jay, we're going to have to finish the discussion there. <laughs> it's, a, it's a complicated book. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, it's fun to delve into on so many levels in, in that regard because the themes, the strands, and the ability of a wide range of readers to connect at different levels. Yeah, that was the intent. Yeah, And hopefully, like I say, people are exposed to new ideas and go on investigating for but themselves. But again, it comes back to the question, how do you manage it in... <laughs> what on earth is going? Don't answer that, but it it it, it sort of seems to coffee and bourbon. I'll say. <laughs> I think the creativeness going on uh, with your brain meat, as one of the words in the book says. So the book is deviant. The author is Jay Christoph, and it's an Alan Nunwin release. So Jay, thanks once again for coming in. Thanks for having me. I think our authors have saved the world today. We've got Jay with Lemon Fresh, and of course Megan here with um, Benedict Hicken. So we're safe until next week when we find out what the next author's going to bring. Is that what you're saying, Jay? Absolutely. And the author I spoke with today was Megan Wilson, Anastasius, and her book, The Emerald Tablet by Pan McMillan.